What drew me into the space was the ability to flip things and make money. What made me stay in the space was to actually realize the potential of it and how it can be really game-changing and life-changing to an extent. And that's what made me stay in it and pursue a career in it. If it was just the former, I would have stayed at Barclays. That's what I would have done. But because I saw the potential in it, there was just that moment where everything clicked for me and I was like, wow, this could really be game-changing and I want to be doing this full-time. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Mint, the podcast brought to you by fair.xyz. In this podcast, we go behind the scenes and learn from some of the planet's most successful NFT creators. We'll explore their tips, tricks, successes, and failures. And for any creators out there who are looking to launch their first NFT collection, then be sure to check out fair.xyz. It's a no-code end-to-end solution platform for anyone who wants to create and launch their first NFT collection. With fair.xyz, you can create a collection in minutes, keep all your creator royalties, and be protected from bots for the best minting experience. In this episode, we are joined by Ovi Farouk, better known as OSF, the founder of Wrecked Guy, one of the most recognized and established NFT collections on the planet. He's also the co-founder of the DGENS community and Canary Labs, and he's one of the NFT OGs, a titan thought leader in the space. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the founders, Cam and Zach, recorded live at the Fair.xyz offices. Let's get into it. I think we can just kick it off. You know, we all know the current form of OSF. Through your spaces, we've also heard a bit about your past. You used to be a trader. But what was before that? Like, how were you in school? Tell us a bit about your background, your upbringing. It's a, it's a good question. No one's ever, I've done a few of these podcasts. No one's ever asked me yeah. how before. I was. Yeah, we're going I was deep. We're at going school deep. growing up. Yeah, so it's like a therapy session. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. Let it all out. <laughs> um, what was I like in school? Gosh, uh, I think... I would say I was always quite ambitious at school. So I was definitely from my upbringing and having Asian parents and all that kind of stuff. I was definitely like, oh, you have to be first at school. Like I had the parents where if I came and got 99% in a maths test, my dad would be like, well, what happened to the other 1%? So I definitely grew up in that kind of environment where I always was trying to like do the best to be the best. And um, yeah, I was very, I wouldn't say I was necessarily studious, but I was very ambitious and I love playing sports. I played a lot of football, cricket when I was growing up. Didn't have a lot of friends when I was a kid. I think maybe I had like two friends during primary school that I can mm-hmm. remember. I started to get a bit more popular as I grew older, I think. But yeah, I was probably like the typical nerdy loser kind of kid <laughs> um, when I was a lot younger, I would say. That's crazy. But you still had like a lot of self-confidence from, from an early stage. I think it's important, right? I think a lot of your success now, I think, you, you know, for me, I think about ourselves as founders as well. And like having that self-confidence ingrained from you from an early age is like super important to be able to reach like and break ceilings, you know. I think that's true. I think a lot of people these days will look down on having pushy parents or pushing ch- kids too hard and all that kind of stuff. But to be honest with you, I wouldn't change anything. I think... That's definitely the foundation, being the foundation for me to achieve anything I've gone on to achieve. And it's made me have that mindset in life where it's like, oh, I want to try and do whatever I'm doing. I want to make sure I'm trying to do well and work hard at it. And that's a, a concept and culture that's been ingrained for me from, from a young age. And I'm happy with it. I wouldn't change anything. Like, has it meant certain points has been more stressful than others? Sure. <laughs> but that's all part of life, right? So what was your dream role as a kid? Was it astronaut or? Yeah, it literally was. <laughs> really? I, I literally wanted to be an astronaut until I realized I had a fear of heights. Oh, oh gosh. Wow, okay. And then people were like, well, how can you be an astronaut? <laughs> so I was like, okay, maybe not. <laughs> so not NFT artist, I assume then when you're 17. <laughs> no, I mean, definitely not. One thing I did from the astronaut days, I did want to actually, I was really into, my dad was a mechanical and also software engineer. So I actually learned to code when I was quite young and my brothers did too. And I was really into tech and IT and all this kind of stuff. And I guess when I was growing up, it was the dot-com bubble. So people talking about tech being the, the next big thing. So I really wanted to do that as a career. I really wanted to just do something in what we used to call IT back then, which sounded very web one. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I always wanted to do. And it wasn't until I was like 17 or 18 where I started, you live through the financial crisis, you start seeing what's happening and actually had a genuine interest in that kind of stuff. And I realized I liked taking risk and I liked this idea of trading and that's what I ended up pursuing. And you went straight into finance? Like, is that what you studied at university or like, do you study here in the UK or? Yeah, so I studied here in the UK. I went to the LSE, I went to the London School of Economics. Oh, so wow. pretty, pretty targeted, from, yeah, pretty targeted <laughs> into done. finance from day one. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think when I was 17, I was studying economics at a school like AS or A-level is what we call it here. And I really liked it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And 
you know, when you speak to 18 year olds and like, I don't know what I want to do for a living or whatever. Things like, I want to be a trader. I, was mm. actually, I knew that's what I wanted to be. I went to the university, like giving the best chance of doing it. And from day one at uni, I was doing all the things that I needed to do to pursue that as a career. Interesting. And I mean, we'll definitely get into your development into being an NFT artist or, you know, Web3 artist in a bit. But I do want to know if during your younger years, whilst you were doing your A-levels, I presume you didn't do A-level art, for example, right? Um, especially if you wanted to get into finance. How how do you almost acquire the skill set to become an artist? Like, where does that experimentation even begin? It's a good question. I would say something that maybe isn't that commonly known because when you work in finance, no one thinks of the other things that you can do. But I've always drawn a lot as a kid. It's been in my family. So my brothers are both very artistic. Nice. A lot of my cousins are both on my mum's side and my dad's side of the family. So it, this this idea of drawing and painting exists within my family. And if you, I'm originally from Bangladesh. So if you go to Bangladesh and you go to my aunt's house or my uncle's house, there are all these paintings and stuff that have been drawn by their kids, my cousins. So that's something that's always been in our family, not from a monetary or a gallery standpoint, but just something that people have always done. Everyone's had this level of creativity in them. And so during school, I did, I was good at art. Like I did a lot mm -hmm. of art. I always did well in it. I never studied at GCSE or A-level because I never perceived it to be a career path. So I didn't study it mm -hmm. per se, but I've, it's always something that I've done. And digital art, I've, from the age of 13 to 18, I spent all my time online. I had this whole wannabe coders kind of stuff. And I also did a lot of digital art. And back then there were different online communities like DeviantArt, mm -hmm. um, online forums. So I'd make digital art, put them on these things and just kind of like chat in these communities and stuff. But there was no crypto or a way to monetize it back then so it was, a, it was mm. a little bit of a different vibe but it's something that i've done a lot and it was purely that's something i did out of enjoyment that i stopped doing when i turned 18 discovered alcohol <laughs> <laughs> and did start doing different things basically yeah <laughs> alcohol and finance yeah exactly <laughs> so, the, the creative side of the brain yeah. you know yeah, is, God. Uh, <laughs> a true wreck on hold for a bit. <laughs> exactly so obviously you had those inklings back then but you decided look i'm gonna go all into finance like double down you did the full like lsc i'm sure you did the summer internships which is yeah. very popular yeah. in the spring UK. weeks internships spring weeks, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've been through it <laughs> i think zach's got a record he did seven spring internships oh, you know wow, really yeah, you know. No, you're one of those guys <laughs> Six, 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 yeah. So similar, similar to that. I think that's actually how you guys first met in Bondi. No, it was, it was with Mando, with Mando actually. Mando, yeah. yeah. We overlapped for a bit, but I don't think we actually met. I was finishing my internship. He just started. Oh, um, wow. But, Crazy. Um, yeah, that's how I knew Mando. Um, of Mando, rather. But yeah, super interesting. So just to kind of summarize, you basically had this goal of becoming a trader. Then you start working as a trader. And I think if we combine these two things and we look at yourself now, there's actually very strong alignment between your passion for art that you kind of had doodled with almost, you know, when you were younger, and also your appetite for risk-taking, which are two massive elements of Web3 and NFTs right now. Uh, so I think I want to talk a bit more about, we've talked about a, a bit about your artistic side, but also about your risk-taking side. So you started as a trader at Barclays. How was that journey for you? How did you develop within that role? And how has that prepared you How long you were you today? there for as well? Yeah, it's a good question. So to answer the earlier question, at university, I studied maths and economics. Mm. So nice. I've always been quantitatively minded. I always think about things in terms of numbers. That's how I analyze things. And so I was at Barclays for just under, under 10 years. It was about nine years. Wow. I did the internship there. Uh, I loved it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And yeah, I started fresh faced in 2012 on the high yield and CDS trading desk uh, in London, which was pretty interesting. And I had, I had an interesting team. It was all ex Lehman Brothers guys from New York who'd moved over to start up mm. the team here. And it was just like walking onto the trading floor and I knew it from my internship. I knew it from when I visited it. And you just, there's this buzz about the place where it's very loud. People are yelling, people are doing things. You know, there's a lot of things going on and there's just hundreds of people you're looking at. And it has this energy that no other workplace has. And people ask me if I miss my old job and something I do miss is, is that energy of the trading floor. So, um, yeah, from day one, I just kind of felt like I was in the right place that I felt at home. I made so many mistakes and, and messed up so much starting out, both when I before you start trading as a junior, as an like assist, assistant trader, if you like. Mm. Even when I was a trader, a junior trader, even when I was a senior trader, you know, a lot of mistakes, a lot of a lot of um a lot of things went wrong, but it was a, you know, I think it's all part of the journey, isn't it? Mm. So that's how you develop your your risk taking knack. When I went over to, it's so funny you say that. Like when I used to go over to your, Zach's house and like you know you see like this big Bloomberg terminals, there is a like real energy and like 
yeah. intangible liveness. Yeah, even to working everything. from home. Yeah, you yeah. got you guys are making me miss it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that itch. No, 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 no. I, I, I always you know what guys, there, you yeah, know, that guy's over. <laughs> no, I, I always say it like I think a lot of people in um in Web three that I've spoken to kind of say, well, I'm so glad that. You know, I switch jobs, etc. But there is a big buzz to to the to the world of trading, and, and there's a there's a big energy around it. And I think even in in Web three, I think you were talking about this the other day, Isaac. That a lot of companies are trying to tap into that energy. I mean, like Blur's UI is extremely similar from yeah. a coloring standpoint to like a Bloomberg terminal, right? Kind of trying to give that feel of a trading floor almost, and and bringing that sentiment into Web three because it's also a highly energetic yeah. industry, which also changes day-to-day and has high volatility so i think i think there's a lot of um a lot of synergies there almost between between higher trading and uh i guess web3 trading or just being in web3 in general so yeah, we, we always tell all our employees that until you buy and sell an nft and do the flip you're not going to get the real sense of essence of what nft trading is about yeah. you know because the emotions which get attached to it like there's the theory and then there's the practice of it. And I think there's such a real and raw feeling you get with that, for sure. Exactly. I think you hit on something important there, which is the emotions and feelings attached to it. And that's what a lot of, it's what a lot of trading is. It's what I think a lot of NFTs are to even a new level as well, because of the sentimental attachment to things that you may buy or sell. And, you know, a lot of people dislike NFTs or hate this environment, hate this world, but they never actually done it they never actually bought exactly. an NFT or sold an NFT and mm-hmm. it is purely emotional and I think that's the biggest explanation for some of the crazy price action you see or you know the activity that you see and until you've actually bought your first NFT and had that rush of a feeling from it and then sold your first one and either made a profit or a loss or whatever it is mm-hmm. you will never understand truly understand these emotions until you've tried it and and the emotional side to it goes a bit beyond traditional trading right because you're never going to feel emotionally attached to like Netflix bonds, right? But you are going to feel emotionally attached to, for example, we went to your to the Rec show, right? A couple of weeks ago, we owned Rec Die NFTs. And if we were ever to sell it, don't worry, we won't. But uh, <laughs> um, it, it wouldn't just be about, oh, I'm pocketing a profit. But it's also about the fact that I've actually shared experiences with this community that also owns this NFT. And so the process of buying and selling doesn't just become a transactional thing. It actually, and we're not just talking about the emotions of buying and selling, but there is an actual emotional attachment to the community that you become a part of the moment that you buy an NFT. That community thing, I think, is also another big intangible feeling, which I try to explain to Web2 people, like... They don't understand how you can have like, you know, changing your profile picture to some JPEG of part of a community can really give you a feeling of sense of belonging. But that's another like intangible thing, which I think until you do it, until you ingrain yourself as part of a Discord community and you build those online friendships, people really struggle to understand, I find. I think that's true. And I think a common misconception is that I don't want to buy some cute fairy animal and have this as my profile picture. I don't resonate with any of that. But that's not just what NFTs are. Like it's there's so many different things. If you like playing golf, you can join LinkStyle. If you like playing football, there's like online football manager type things. There's all these different communities and it can really be anything. But this idea of using NFT technology to token gate stuff, to create online communities, to bring people together, it's not a new concept. It's something that's existed for a long time, but it's just done in a more effective way. And, you know, it's not just, you don't have to think, oh, I don't want to own a board eight because I don't like this or the art. You can literally do anything you want within the, the realm of Web3. Exactly. And it's something that I think will grow. So 10 years nearly at Barclays then. So, you know, how come I'm not speaking to you in Canary Wolf? You know, what, <laughs> what, what happened? Yeah, so I spent six years in London in Canary Wolf, which is funny. I used to be in awe of Canary Wolf. I used to go there when you have it's your internet some, applications. Yeah, it's yeah. like, wow, these huge skyscrapers and- The clean roads. The clean roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, I want to be here. This is where This is where the real stuff goes down. So I really was in awe of it at first. And then when I started working there, and as time goes on, you realize it kind of sucks the life out of you a little bit and, and feels very sterile. But I spent six years working in London. I actually spent three years working in New York, which was amazing. It probably had one of the best times of my life there. Um, we worked right near Times Square, which again, Sick. when I was there, I was in awe of Times Square. And then I realized very quickly that was not the, the place <laughs> you wanted to be in New York. But that was an amazing experience. And then I spent, I came back to London. I probably spent another six months in London before I decided to hang the boots up, as, as, as we'd say. And yeah, that was when that was when I decided I wanted to move full-time into Web3. I'd spent probably the last year of my career 
involved in crypto and NFTs and Web3 and stuff. And it was never something that I wanted to do to full-time or quit my job to do. I think I was feeling like I needed a change and I needed a career change. And that was part of the reason why I moved to New York and I enjoyed New York, had the best time, but it was I was getting those same feelings of like, I don't really know if this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'm still at that age where I can make that change and and, and do something. Mm-hmm. That was a feeling that I already had before even touching crypto. And I think it was just amazing that I jumped into crypto and NFTs and Web3 and I realized it was something that I actually enjoyed, was passionate about and felt I had the right skill set for. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm kind of, I'm grateful for it, I guess. So what was the first step into that journey? And I, I think, you know, I think a lot of us has probably dabbled in crypto way before we went into NFTs, but specifically within NFTs. Yeah. Remember your first conversation even. <laughs> yeah. So look, I, my first crypto purchase was in Jan 21. Mm. So I was actually pretty late into crypto. Wow. My, I heard about ETH. 2017 and my friend told me to buy it and I couldn't get KYC by Coinbase and it didn't work and then everything crashed. I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> um, but I was crypto skeptic for many, many years. And in Jan 21, actually I, I was speaking to Mando about this and we had this big view of inflation and like rates, Fed not um, hiking rates. So how can you best play that trade? And Bitcoin was a big thing for it. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to like ha- take a chance and, and go for it. So I then went down the rabbit hole. So Bitcoin, I looked at ETH, and independently, we were also looking at investing in collectibles like art, wine, whiskey, that kind of stuff. And Mando stumbled on NFTs through that, actually, not through crypto. And then he just bought a bunch of JPEGs. I think he mm-hmm. spent thousands of dollars on a bunch of JPEGs. And he told me, he's like, we should, you should buy this stuff too. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, look, man, like I, I've just got my head around Bitcoin. I've just bought some ETH. I'm not buying these illiquid things that has no real market or no liquidity and just putting a bunch of money into it. Then I saw he sold something that he bought and he made about 10 times his money in three weeks. Wow. Wow. I know, which is insane. And so I was like, okay, I may not believe in this stuff, but the trader in me wanted to be like, okay, I've got to, I've just got to get involved. And so my first purchase was a one of one from Super Rare in March 21. That's still early, by the way. Which is still, yeah, right. I mean, it was perfect timing, yeah. I guess, right before things kicked off. But that was my first purchase and I wanted to buy something that was art because I had an appreciation for digital art. It was something that I liked. And yeah, I just went, I went pretty, I went pretty, I went from zero to aggressive pretty quickly because the next few weeks I just basically put all my savings into it. like <laughs> illiquid digital art. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And then, you know, the rest is, uh, the rest is what it was. Do you remember who the artist was? At the yeah, it was, it was an artist called Dan, Dan Jews. Uh, the piece was called A Cozy Morning. Oh, nice. <laughs> it, was, it was a really nice piece. It was kind of like a cyberpunk themed piece. I felt it was very like, not traditional art, but very like modern digital, mm-hmm. um, the cyberpunk kind of vibe. So I really like that stuff. So yeah, that's what I bought. Did your conviction in the space come from doing success? Like, because obviously I obviously want to talk about, you know, you buying into Bordet. And <laughs> yeah. I think it was one of your biggest claims to fame. Did your conviction in the space come from your successful trades? Or did it come from you understanding more about the power of NFTs and the future of it? It's a really good question. Um, and I think it's important to make that, make that distinction. I would say what drew me into the space was the ability to flip things and make money. What kept me in the space for the next few weeks was the ability to flip things and make money. What made me stay in the space was to actually realize the potential of it and how it can be really game-changing and life-changing to an extent. Um, and that's what made me stay in and pursue a career in it. And if it was just the former, I would have stayed at Barclays. I would have done this stuff on the side. You know, crypto is unregulated. You can do whatever you want with it. And that's what I would have done. But because I saw the potential, there was just that moment where everything clicked for me. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this could really be game changing. And I want to be doing this full time. So how do you feel about financial speculation and NFTs in general? Do you think it's a positive force or a negative force? I think it's great. I love it, to be honest, to be honest with you. I think... You know, I'm saying this as someone who likes risk taking and for sure spent ten years as a trader and, and loved it. And I love finance, uh, but I also love art. And I think NFTs are just this amazing hybrid of them. It's an asset class, but it's not really security. But it's not just quantitative things that that um, constitute value. There's things that you, like memes or you know quality of the art, things that you can't even put your finger on. Communities that you can't always quantify these things. So I think it's such a fascinating asset class and. The idea of speculation is great because it attracts a lot of people and it attracts a lot of people who may not have been art appreciators before, but came as speculators, but then turned into those who appreciate art. Mm. And I'm one of them as well, I think. Interesting. And do, do you think then that, because I, I've always had this thesis that there can be 
almost a detachment between a highly speculative asset and retail. How do you think those two come together from that perspective? Because, you know, most people don't want to, I don't know if most people, but a lot of people maybe don't want to buy into an asset that, you know, swings up and down 20% every single day. I would say, I think, and I hope people know what they get themselves in for. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you want to buy a piece of art that you really like and you just want it to be that piece of art, then it doesn't have to be an NFT. You can buy, even buy digital art that's not NFTs, right? But if you want to buy something and you want to play these swings and speculate and stuff, then you know you can do that with an NFTs. And honestly, that's what attracts a lot of people. I think you have mm-hmm. to you have to call a spade a spade. And there's all this stuff about we're in it for the art, we're in it for the tech, and all this kind of stuff. And I don't disagree with any of them. And to an extent, I am in it for both of those as well. But you have to understand the reason why this has taken off the way it has is because of this ability to speculate and because there is a market for it. And that's where a lot of value actually comes from, whether you mm-hmm. like it or not, and whether you hate it when people sell your art or sell your projects <laughs> is what it is. I never take it personally. And I know everyone is different, um, but that is the market. And if you don't like it, you don't have to be a part of it. You mm-hmm. can sell art in the traditional world. You can sell art digitally in, in a different way. But what a lot of people realize is this actually gives you the ability to do things that you maybe couldn't have achieved in the traditional world. And I think that's 100%. the beauty of it. I also believe that it, you know, it can really be used as a tour de force because of the ability to let community members, which were in early, to sort of be financially incentivized to help build into that community. Like if if I'm an emerging creator and as a super fan, I buy into that community and help them build. Because, you know, a lot of the communities we see today, Yuga, et cetera, were not just built just from the founding team. It was everything the community did around it, which made it successful today. So it kind of, it's nice to see financial incentives align between holders of the project which are contributing to the success of it and you know the you know how much money they're making so yeah i think definitely could be used but i think you know everyone needs to know what they're getting themselves in for for sure and we hope there'll be a place where people you know will be buying these nfts because of the interoperability of it because of the gated experiences it gives you and as you said you're buying it because you know you like it and like of course, the up and downs are, are pros, but you know, there's also a real utility side to it as well. For yeah, sure. I mean, when we were at the Rec show, I spoke to maybe like 20 people there. Yeah, I was just having a conversation about, you know, you know, why you're a Rec guy, like why do you... And you'd be surprised to know that not a single one of them said, oh, because I want to make a good flip. They all said, I just love this community. Like we had, they had people that were flying in from the US for the day. Switzerland, from Switzerland, Not to go to the conference, yeah. to come to the rec show. That level of commitment in which you actually spend more in your flight tickets and your accommodation than the price of the NFT, that's that's not financial speculation. That's love for the community that you create. And that's something extremely powerful, which really distinguishes these NF, you know, NFTs from everything else, really. Yeah, it goes back to the that what we talked about earlier about emotion and, and feelings. And, you know, I've made some, I've met you guys through, <laughs> through NFTs, right? Like yeah, I wouldn't be sure. here had it not been for it. And I've made some some very good friends through it. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that you can't just say, well, this is worthless because there are, there are things that you can't actually put monetary value on that people do genuinely value. 100%. So I, I need to ask the question about the Bored Apes then. Yeah. How, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, is the number as big as they say it is in terms of how many you bought? You know, yeah. like, was that a primary sale? We'd love to just hear a little bit of uh, the inside scoop here. Oh gosh, it's, it's, the, it's the funniest thing. So up until this point, this is April 21, We'd mainly been focused on collecting art. So it was just one of one art that we collected. We didn't like crypto. I say we because Manda and I did a lot of things together. We didn't like CryptoPunks. We thought there it was like this huge pump and dump thing. This idea of your PFP being a Rolex or digital identity, the stuff. Didn't believe any of it. Like, right. We were just like. So interesting. Yeah. Did not believe any of it. It was just <laughs> hilarious to say right now. Literally. Um, but we did believe in art as a and NFTs as a medium for art. And that was what we thought was the real bull case. So we didn't touch CryptoPunks or anything like that. We were very like, oh no, like we're not going to get involved in that. These <laughs> things are obviously going to dump at some point. And then, but I was, I started to feel something in me where I was like, maybe we're wrong. A lot of people are buying these punks now. Things are going that well. So I, just, I started to have these seeds of doubt in me that maybe we were wrong. So that's, that's to preface what, what happened next, which was I was in New York at the time. I quit my job to move back to London. So I was actually going to move to a different bank. And when you resign, I think you've, you've been through it as well. It's a very stressful situation. Everyone's yes. like, oh, and I'd been at Barclays at this point for eight years. So they're like, you know, we gave you a job, you interned here and you're now leaving to another bank. And this is crazy. And so it's very like, it's quite emotional. So I got home. Um, I was a bit drunk. I think it was about 3 a.m. actually in the, in the, in the morning. Wrecked guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely a wrecked guy. My then girlfriend, now wife, was was asleep. I was um, 
yeah, it's kind of in a bit in a bit of like an emotional state and bit of a and also like when you you know I oh my gosh yeah. <laughs> I just, it's crazy where the story's gonna end <laughs> buying sixty eight eggs <laughs> yeah and I was I I quit my job successfully you you get three months off and you're in between jobs so you get paid three months off you get a bonus so you in my mind it's like I had like a you know a bit of money to spend I was gonna already spend it on NFTs I think <laughs> and so I basically get home um I'm. I don't know how like PG or X-rays is, but I'm there like just having a piss basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's fine. Part of tone of voice. Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, just scrolling through my phone on Twitter, like pretty wasted. My wife's like, well, girlfriend's like, oh, why are you home so late? Whatever. So I was complaining. I'm scrolling through my phone. And I see this board ape thing that everyone's minting on Twitter. So I went and looked at the website on my phone, and I was like, wow, this actually this website looks good. Compared to everything else I've seen in the collectibles market, where it's all just shitty minting websites or people selling on OpenSea, it was like a very, very professionally done website. And it was called the Bored Ape Yacht Club. And that was the first moment in time for me where I realized this idea of a yacht club. And I'm not a big water person. I don't like yachts. But I was like, oh, this could be something that could you could be a part of owning this NFT. And I kind of got that idea of a members club. And it was the first thing that specifically stated it. Nothing else before that had stated it. So... Given how everything looked, it was professional. And given how I was feeling, I was like, look, I'm ready to take a gamble. And I had that thing about the punks. I was like, maybe, you know, maybe this could be something. And I saw lots of people, influencers minting it. So I was like, fine, I'll just mint some. So like, while I was still having a piss, I like go into my MetaMask mobile and just start minting no it. No way. So I minted 10. And then I minted 20. Had Pranksy minted at this point? Pranksy had minted at this point, okay. yeah. Um and then I could see, you could see how much was left available. I could see it was minting out very, very fast. So that was like the real trader in me. Is like I just, I don't know if I'm going to hold these forever, but I know they're going to go up. Um, so I just minted as many as I could. So I ended up minting 150 of them. What? Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Crazy. All while just like standing in the bathroom on my phone. Just oh like, my just God, like no them, way. Uh, which was insane. And then I went back, got my laptop out in bed. And I was just like looking at the prices and stuff and just like watching what happened. And, you know, they were, there were 0.08 ETH to mint, which I think was $400 at the time. And I think immediately they're at 0 0.2, 0 0.25. And I basically did what any trader would do. I started listing them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ended up, I was like, well, this is great. I just made four or five times my money in, you know, a few minutes or an hour or whatever it was. And over the next two days, I actually ended up selling pretty much all of them. I had some good ones. I had a, a, a trippy ape with a halo. No. Oh I had a gold ape, no. which was like one wearing a beanie. It's like pipe. 700 ETH floor now. No. Yeah. <laughs> it was literally like, I think that's probably the most, one of the most aesthetic apes in the whole collection, which I sold for like five ETH. Um, so I sold all of it because at that point in time, I still didn't believe it, right? I was like, well, I'm just trading stuff, making money. I actually kept two back for my niece and nephew who, who are now... Or, not getting the ape. Or <laughs> yeah, well, no, not getting yeah. the um, But it's one of those things I was like, I told my brother-in-law, I was like, look, I'm going to keep these back for them because you know maybe one day they'll be worth something. It's yeah. kind of like a joke. And like, lo and behold, <laughs> yeah. oh, they actually are worth something. It's pretty amazing. But yeah, that's the story. So we actually ended up selling all of them um, yeah. pretty pretty quickly. So then, okay, so you've ended up, you know, flipping all the board apes. You definitely must have high conviction in this space now. You know, <laughs> you you have another offer to join the bank at this point. Do you now, you know, like what happened from there? Yeah, so like it was still my intention to go to, to carry on going to the next job. I think in hindsight, it was a game changer for me to quit my job and have these three months off because I had three months off with nothing to do. And I think if I was still working at the bank, I would have spent that time busy at work. And then, you know, crypto had this great crash in, in May of 21. And if I was still working at a bank, that may have been enough for me to just have left. It really could have. But because I had this time off and we went to, my wife's from the Caribbean, so we went there for most of it. And which sounds really nice, but unfortunately they were behind the ball on the COVID stuff. So mm. we, I actually went into another lockdown for my three months off Gosh. with nothing to do. I just spent that time basically, as you can imagine, I spent all that time in crypto and NFTs, mainly in NFTs. And that was game changing for me because I spent, I spoke to a lot of very smart interesting people who I never would have met otherwise, which made me realize the true potential of all the stuff. And it was during that time where I think it just kind of clicked for me. And I was like, wow, this stuff has amazing potential. But even then I just, I didn't think I was going to quit my job for it. I never really thought that. And I never expected that huge price boom that we saw in summer of, of 21 
JPEG summer, the great JPEG summer of 2021. Yeah, that was JPEG summer indeed. <laughs> um, I never expected it. So it was still my intention to, to go back to work. And even after all that, I did. I actually ended up going back to Barclays. So I got managed to swindle another month off. So I had four, ended up on four <laughs> months off, which is great. Went back to Barclays. But I, I do think the first, the first day I was there, when I walked into that office in Canary Wharf, sat down and saw the people, which was nice to see, and just sat down looking at traditional finance again. I was like, man, this is so boring. Compared <laughs> okay, to so the last few months that I've had, like, how can I, how can I possibly carry on doing this job? Like, how, like I just, it took me going back to re- truly realize that. But it's like, you're trading things that are moving 5% a day, maybe 10% a day at work, which they're big moves. Like, mm. you know, the S&P 500 moves 2%. Everyone's like, wow, like, stuff's rallying today. I was like, man, like, I've just been through stuff that's moved 1,000%. Yeah. And then back down 99% the other way. Like, <laughs> like and if you have that risk-taking mindset, um, which I do, is like, I just can't go back to this. I have to be in this other asset class. So I think that's the first day is when I knew I wasn't going to do this for a long time. And about a month later, I think we went to our boss, Manuel and I, and we're like, look, this is not for us anymore. We want to move on and, and do this full time. And he was great. There were Barclays were so amazing about it. They were like, I completely get it. You guys have this big opportunity to go, go for it and do it. They didn't even convince us or pressure us to try and stay. Nothing like that. It was, it was really the most amazing experience. And I will forever be thankful for my experience at Barclays because I think some of the skill set, skills that I have now or the mindsets you get into, this idea of discipline and handling the emotions, they're all things that I learned from very smart people at Barclays. And I definitely wouldn't be able to succeed in this space without having had that experience, I think. so. That's amazing. And your relationship with Mando, did that start from finance or is that like childhood friends? Or like, when did you, when did you both meet? Yeah, it's a good question. We, so we both met through work. Um, he was the junior trader of the year after I was. So he started a year after me, but we were both junior traders on a small desk and we sat shoulder to shoulder next to each other for five or six years. And, you know, when you're on a trading job, you spend and you're a junior, you spend 12 hours a day together, five days a week. You're probably working some weekends and you're spending the evenings together doing client stuff. So we spend a lot of our time together, more than we did with our significant others, more than I did with any other friend. And that's how we got to know each other. And that's how we both knew we could work together today because it's always a difficult thing when you go to work with friends, right? You never know what the dynamic's going <laughs> to yeah, be. We know. always have this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But it's like, well, we met through work, had a very strong relationship throughout a job that was stressful at times. So we knew we could do that together. And I think, you know, we're both very lucky that we have each other, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think we went for a similar thing. Obviously, Isaac was working at Goldman Sachs. I was working on Instagram. Like I was working on the NFT team. And I think for us, yeah, like as, as best friends, we're always like, you know, should we do this? Should we not? You know, like, of course, we love each other. It would nothing better than like taking on each day and trying to take on the world together with your best friends. But also like there has to be a level of maturity, I think, to the relationship. You know, you have to be honest with your friends and yeah. instead of... You we're very blunt with yeah. one another when there's... <laughs> when we're there's we're the same. Said. I'm actually a very standoffish person. I, I never I never speak my mind if it's to say something negative about something or constructive criticism, I guess, to say these days. But Mando's the only person, probably the only person in the world who I would just be upfront. Like, <laughs> this sucks. This is rubbish. Like, you're really stupid for like, thinking about this. And... Um, <laughs> I think Mando put out a tweet about it the other day. Something like I can't remember what the tweet was, but it alluded to something like this. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. So I, I tell him every time he gets upset at me for yelling at him or whatever, I tell him, look, mate, it's a compliment because you're the only person who I'd you be that from. Exactly. So. <laughs> Amazing. So you're full time focusing on collectors. And I, we we were sort of similar in ourselves. Like we started off as collectors and moved to being a little bit more on the creator side. You know, when did that that shift happen for you? Was Red Guy always the sort of vision once you once you left to go full time, or did it just come naturally? I think the ambition was always to, to leave and be full-time collectors or traders and or investors, if you like. The first project we did was this project called DGENs, which we actually did yes. in July 21, which was during my lockdown in the Caribbean. I don't know what we were thinking, really. We were just like, let's just do a project. It could be fun. Mm-hmm. And we did it, and it was a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we tried to be creative, had all these like, buyback mechanisms and stuff. And I think at the end of the day, people just didn't really like, people didn't appreciate the art. They didn't really like the idea behind it and it went to zero very quickly and we tried a lot of different things to revive it and we were trying to go down this idea of like it being a comic book or a cartoon and it just didn't whatever we tried didn't work it wasn't for lack of trying and come december it was just like a project that was at zero basically kind of looked like a soft rug and and so we're like okay we need to figure figure this out because it's not it wasn't our intention for it to to make it a rug but the ideas we had weren't great and we were like look at the end of the day we have no experience in cartoons Mm -hmm. or or animations or that kind of stuff or comic books so 
why don't we switch it to something that we are good at that's, that can be a, naturally, a natural part of our day, which was like trading, investing, risk-taking. So we just change it. So like if you own the DJ and you've got access to our Discord and we put in a lot of information about like our thoughts and trades, like daily market commentary, all that kind of stuff. And people ended up liking that and appreciating it. And we then had an opportunity to build that into a bigger research platform, which is what it is now. But that was the first project. And again, it was never, we thought we could just sell a bunch of art and people would be fine with it. And I guess people weren't. People yeah. had expectations. <laughs> so expectation we couldn't live up to. So we had to make a pivot in our strategy to make it something that ended up being valuable in the end. Mm -hmm. So obviously DGENs, you know, start building up the community. What are the biggest challenges you found, you know, either from launching the collection or managing the community? Like what are the pain points? Hardest thing about managing communities is keeping everyone engaged and fulfilling expectations. The, la the last thing I think is was the hardest thing. Do you have and a roadmap? We had a roadmap and it was just, the roadmap was just like, we're going to spend money on having like a DJs fest in real life. Mm. We're going to, it wasn't a crazy roadmap. Charity and merch? Um, we didn't have, we did have charity. <laughs> we had a community fund. Okay, we didn't nice. have merch. <laughs> what actually ended up happening is that we put in a vote to say, all the ETH we had set aside for that, we put in a vote to say, do you guys want to spend the ETH buying them back and, and burning them? Wow. And the vote was yes. Wow. <laughs> like, I was like, people hated this so much that they voted on us spending like, it was like 100 ETH on buying all the stuff back and burning them. So oh there's gosh. actually, it's a collection of 11,000, but there's like, there's almost 7,000 of them burnt in the burn, but not- On the burner burnt. address. Yeah, yeah. the burner address, yeah. So that's where all that ETH went. So we had all these like great ideas and initiatives and we gave in to the community. We gave in to them, people who are just angry and upset who are like, yeah, just burn them. And so we never were able to fulfill our roadmap, not because we didn't fulfill our obligations, because we put it to a vote and it was a community vote and they, that's what they voted on, yeah. but that's what happened. So I think that's the hardest part, like living up to community expectations. And I think when we did Rex Guy, we learned from that mistake and it was like, look, let's just not set any expectations. That way you filter out the pe people you don't want in the community, the people who are just there to cause a problem. Mm -hmm. And you get people who are actually in it for genuine reasons, like I like the art or I like just being in this discord. Mm -hmm. That was, just, it was as simple as that. And I think that was a big lesson that we learned. That's amazing. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about before, but before we even started the podcast about the community, but also the branding that's been created around Wrecked Guy. Is that something that you always had in mind or is that something that you've just seen as a natural convergence from the community that you have into that kind of uh, branding? It's pretty amazing what happened there because Wrecked Guy, I had the idea to create it in January of this year. So before mm. this whole crash and everything, and it was just meant to be an extension of my art. It was a free mint for DJs. I thought it would be another thing that would go to zero, but I, w I wasn't setting any expectations. It was mm -hmm. free anyway. And that was always going to be like no nothing big. By the time we launched it in April or May, my art has started to take off quite a lot. So there were some expectations already, yeah. already baked in, even if I didn't want them to be there. But again, it was just like, this is just going to be a piece of art. We thought of the name Wreck Guy, which we thought, we thought was kind of funny. And it's just a piece of art. That was it. Nothing more than that. It then just had this reaction to it that, we, again, we didn't expect, but we recognized was quite powerful. And it launched when you had the crypto crash started. And we realized that this is a concept a lot of people vibe with and understand with. And it doesn't matter if, even if it's not a bear market, even if it's a bull market, people get rug pulled in crypto all the time, right? Everyone For gets sure. wrecked. It happens. It's just a very common crypto culture. It's ingrained in crypto culture. And un, like unwillingly, we had somehow just pinpointed this, vibe or feeling and it's funny because with dgens we have all these crypto memes but it was too like we were trying to state it we were too obvious with it because wreck guy wasn't our intention and it happened very naturally so this idea of it being a brand and all this stuff it was never the plan but i think when we saw the reception and we we saw how people reacted to it we saw it as an opportunity and then we started to realize that, okay this is a big opportunity should push it as a brand and i feel like as an as an artist as a creator in the space you kind of juggle a lot of different facets to your to you being a creator so obviously you've got your one-off one art which we haven't spoken about i'd love to hear a bit more about that you've got dgens you've got wrecked guy you know you had seven deadly sins for example as an experience almost for the community with like hints here and there that all led to kind of like a final a final puzzle being solved how do you a genuine question like how do you manage so many different elements to your day-to-day -day as a creator alone leave aside everything else yeah it's it's tough sometimes because you always, I always wake up feeling like, oh, I've got so much to do. Mm -hmm. And when I go to sleep, it's like, oh, I sh maybe I should do a bit more, but I really need to sleep because I'm so tired. So it, it is really tough. And 
you have to be good about organizing your day. I'm not good about organizing my day. I'm very, my attention splits from one thing to another. And I might just, might be drawing something on an iPad and I might be doing something on Discord. I'm not seeing through projects mm. in one go, which I think means I'm not efficient about my time. But mm. it is really tough and there's a lot of things that can distract you. But I just, I really enjoy doing it all. I really love doing it all. And, you know, when you see community reactions, when you see positive community reactions, or when you see people say things like, oh, this was a free mint and I managed to sell my rec guy for 0.5 ETH and it's the first time I made money in NFTs. It's like, wow, like something that I created gave someone that that adrenaline of that positive feeling that I had when I first started NFTs and I was able to create that. That's the sort of stuff that makes it really worth it for me. And that's why I keep doing it, I think. And, you know, I could cut some stuff out and do a bit less here and there, but I just know, I kind of feel like I'd be letting people down if I did that. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Wow. So I do think that communities have matured a lot though. If I look at, you know, summer 21 versus right now, I think all of it, well, most of it probably comes from the crash and that really the OGs are the ones that have stayed. But, but, you know, there is a huge element to, you know, still managing a community from now. And I think, you know, we, we were talking before about how you wear many hats as a creator. I think, first of all, it'd be useful to understand as a one-of-one artist, not, not even as a community builder necessarily, but just you, want, you have one-of-one art. Where does that journey even start for you as, if there's a creator today that, that is thinking of that journey? I think you have to find ways to make yourself stand out and be different. What I just said is such a cliche thing to say that everyone says in anything. But at the end of the day, there are so many people who now create NFTs of one of ones. They just do the, they all do the same thing. You mint your NFT, you do it on foundation or something, and you start an auction, and you post on Twitter. You might DM some collectors, and you just hope that someone's going to look at your art and it's going to be and buy it. Basically, if you're lucky, or if your art's really good. And, or maybe if you've managed to build like a persona, then maybe you might get lucky, but maybe you won't. And you're not really doing anything different to anyone else. One thing that I think is very important is people that get rewarded in the space in terms of artists are those that are perceived to be a real part of the community. So if someone has spent a long time in, you don't even have to collect other people's art, you know, that obviously helps, but you don't have to do that. But if you spend a lot of time actually speaking to people and engaging in people and taking part in some of these conversations that happen, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Twitter spaces and vocally and being part of communities and discord, then people know who you are. So when you do come to sell a piece of art, someone might be like, well, you know what? Like, I quite like that guy. Well, he's my mate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this piece. That's so different from just coming in and saying like, I'm really good at art and here's my piece and foundation. Like, please someone buy it. For sure. It's just, it's not going to happen. So I think that's one of the most important things I would say. So it does, even for one of one art, come down to almost like community once again, right? Like the idea of having a circle around you in the space that that supports you through that. Right? I think that that's kind of the, the key takeaway there. I think so. Yeah. And actually someone pseudo called me out for this last week and was like, this is sending the wrong message because and I, his words were someone has has built a short career in art from using hype and influence, which are his words. And I, you know, I don't think that's completely well. true, but, <laughs> but he does touch on the point that maybe I've had some success from actually being part of this community and putting mm -hmm. out a lot of content in other ways. And that's allowed me to then in turn sell art, which maybe I wouldn't have had as much success with had I just come as an artist. And you know what? He's right. Like I wouldn't say hype and influence because I, th I think those are the wrong terms, but what he's getting at is right. The question is, is that a bad thing? And how different is that to a traditional art world, right? Like, you know, you have to do the same stuff. In the the art world. world is, of course, it revolves around a lot, a lot around hype, right? But there's also like some arbitrary catalyst yeah. that just make an artist work so much more valuable. Like yeah. if an artist dies, then, you know, art kind of skyrockets. Right. And, like, you know, they've got influence. But you need to also have a coherent theme in your art and something which is a unique aesthetic. Like when I look mm -hmm. at your one-of-one -one art, I can tell straight away that's exactly. been produced by OSF, you know? If I look at an ex-copy piece of art, I know that's built by ex-copy. And it's about having that consistency and coherent aesthetic, I think is also important on top of the, the community side, right? Which I, which I feel is like being an active decision by you because even the, the themes of the art pieces you do, I think, you know, is all intertwined about getting wrecks and stuff like this. I think that's really important. I think that come, also comes back to being unique mm -hmm. because you can make an amazing piece, but if it, if it doesn't send a message or tell a story and maybe if it's not something that's recurrent through your pieces, then it, it will get lost. And as you said, like when you see an X copy, you know it's an X copy. When you see a Grant Yoon, you know it's a Grant Yoon. Having that ability to be instantly recognizable without seeing the artist's name underneath it, I think is really important. And it's about adapting and, and changing your, you know, maybe even changing your style or 
what you're doing to it's like marketing and branding in a way to like brand it in a way that becomes recognizable i think so i think the key takeaways here from from my perspective is like building a recognizable and coherent aesthetic having like a deep rooted emotional story which you want to convey and like use the hype and like building the building around the community and being involved with crypto natives as a, as a positive versus something which is a negative like don't have the expectation that sales are just dramatically going to come to you even if you're the best artist in the world yeah and by the way i think like you know we're talking about how communities have matured and so on i think that that says a lot like you don't build hype in 2022 nft land unless you're actually delivering value like people actually think carefully before they you know go straight into a project or before they buy into a community so i think there, there's a lot to be said for it anyway the last thing i would add to that is look these are nfts this is a world of great technology and all this kind of stuff use the tech to your advantage you know create things that are different you don't have to just list something as an auction create different dynamics around it like oh every bidder will get an addition like that incentivizes people to bid or you know make the nft dynamic where mm. if the eth price changes and it has a different picture i really like that by the way yeah, yeah so like you know use the use use the technology and think outside the box like again that's a very cliche thing to say but mm -hmm. people don't do it and we're seeing more angles to utility for example right like when you guys did the rec show sorry to keep going back to it but you had <laughs> you really love the rec show huh? you really <laughs> did no i really hope for the right reason yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> goodness gracious anyway, no, we met we met with the um with the guy that was um setting up i think through token proof the burger you know the, the burger basically yeah, got, yeah, like, a yeah, yeah i mean pa patty and van yeah exactly patty and van that was the name and it's just like this this idea of like actually being able to tap into the composability of NFTs to provide utility, which is extremely valuable. And now we're seeing communities like yours actually proper using it, which is uh, which is awesome. How do, you, how do you think that evolves in the next couple of years? I think it will keep expanding to ways that people don't realize. I think the biggest thing for me is people will end up using NFT technology without knowing mm. their NFTs. And you already had this term digital collectibles, which are basically NFTs that, you know, Facebook are using or Reddit were using, but... Look, at the end of the day, when you send a bank transfer, how many people are like, oh, I just sent this through Chaps or like ACH or whatever. When you send a bank transfer, you're not going, you're not logging into like um, the bank system and like doing the payment and like mm -hmm. you, you, don't, you don't get involved with any of that stuff. You just have this UI, which does everything. And I think that will be the same thing for NFTs and crypto. And you kind of have it like the Starbucks loyalty program. Yes. They're basically NFTs, but you don't see or not understand that it is. And I think that will be the biggest advancement. Do you think that simplified UI where like the user doesn't necessarily get access to the full decentralized experience is long-term a big positive or actually a negative for adoption? I think it's a big positive because you have the choice. If you really believe in decentralization, there are ways you can do it like mm -hmm. we have now, right? Reality is most people don't really care. Um, I'll just say it. Most people don't really care <laughs> about decentralization. I'm not a decentralization maxi. I do believe it has benefits and I like having my stuff in a decentralized manner, but I think most people don't care. And so how do you get most people onboarded? Maybe it's not in a de decentralized way, but that can still be very good for mass adoption of the space as a whole. Makes sense. And I think are there any sort of other big themes which you which you see sort of coming into the future of NFTs? I mean, we've only really touched really much on the collectible side, but do you think that music, fashion, digital wearables, like, you know, what are some other sort of new assets you think will be sort of big over the next few years? Something that I think is funny is when you talk about NFTs, you're talking about art, entertainment, music, fashion, all these sorts of things. But no one's really thought much about the idea of NFTs representing maybe physical goods in, in other industries. So something that I always mention when I try and explain NFTs to people is like, imagine used cars were all NFTs, right? So every time you got your car serviced, that data went on chain. It's part of the metadata. So when you go to buy a used car, it's like, cool, this is verify this is the car by the NFT. I have all the history on chain. I can actually check it. It prevents you from buying lemons and all that kind of stuff. And it's great for manufacturers and all this kind of like warranties, et cetera, all these, all these sorts of things. And that's just one example that used car market where it would be very powerful. And I think, I genuinely think what you'll see is you'll see digital representation of a lot of physical goods in the future. And people, again, people won't realize they're NFTs, but mm -hmm. they will be. And it will be an easy way to write in metadata and keep track of things basically where you need to keep track of things. I think like, even just in general, like community leaders or politicians, like imagine how easy it would be to vote for people if like a lot of the information was on chain and transparent, right? Voting on chain, yeah, voting on chain that is would one be of the biggest thing. Revolutionary. <laughs> Literally yeah, revolutionary. Yeah, it, it, we will see on-chain voting in our lifetime. Yeah, it's auditable. It may not be on Ethereum or Polygon, it might be on a government network, but it's still like, it's auditable. So I mean, also part of the role which we haven't really discussed, which you cover is like you're sort of becoming the 
sort of the, the media outlet for NFTs, you know, in a way now with GM NFTs that I think you're doing. You know, GM Web3. GM Web3, yeah, sorry, I need to step up here. <laughs> how did, you know, was that, you know, how did that come about? You know, is that something which you think has played an important role to get into the community and like, you know, make your voice heard or, you know, how did this? Absolutely, I think it came about because when Mando and I quit our jobs at Barclays, we wanted, we had a lot of time. So we wanted to do a daily Twitter space or a weekly Twitter space just to, us to talk about through, th to talk through things and talk about things with other people. And then Farouk started Rag Radio and said, do you guys just want to have a show on Rag Radio? So we said, sure. And eventually that turned into a daily space, which I think, again, it was it's all about trying to do these things to make them a part of your day. And for us, catching up on the news and all that kind of stuff was always a part of our day. So, you know, instead of me giving Mando a phone call, we could do it live on Twitter spaces. But that's grown into become, as you said, like a, some some kind of a media outlet. And it's grown to, some, to be something much bigger than... I think we realized it would be, but we also were always confident that the idea behind it was a strong one, mm -hmm. this idea of decentralized media and allowing creators to actually earn compared to the web, the web two platforms. So I think it has a big future and it's definitely been very important for us to get our voice out there or have a presence, I think, in the space. Where did you, you know, because obviously you said it's super important for creators to to learn about the community, build relationships and strong bonds. like. You know, obviously you quit, you know, you're getting involved with some of these communities, but where did you naturally build a lot of your bonds and friendships with people within the space? I think mainly from collecting at the beginning, I think. I made a lot of friends with big collectors very early on because there were very few people spending a lot of money at that point in time. And then I made a lot of friends with artists because we collected a lot of artists as well. And, you know, we always split our collecting from, like, collecting the, you know, the, the big stuff <laughs> to also, like, New, find, trying to find new artists and that was a, an amazing way to meet a lot of people and some of my best friends now are artists that I've collected very early on um, when they're saying for next to nothing or whatever just, just to be involved and now I'm just friends with these people so um, I think I would definitely art is where um, I grew my, my own community for sure that's mad I mean first of all you know I really want to appreciate you coming on today I think it's been Thanks amazing and super insightful you know it's rare to see someone giving go from like some like at one point of their career completely separate to finance to now becoming like an artist and like pushing so many barriers you know and like really changing you know the definition and the stereotype of what an artist should be you know it's not someone which just went to Central St. Martins and <laughs> yeah. you know you know went to art school for 10 years you know, you're selling your arts for thousands of pounds, you know, and really building an amazing movement behind it. So yeah, we're grateful to call you a good friend of ours, you know, here at FAIR as well. And yeah, really appreciate you coming down. Very much. Yeah, appreciate awesome. it, guys. It was a pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. A bit of a mix. You've got to get the <laughs> Iona roasting this morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing that video. <laughs> oh man, awesome. trust me. <laughs> That's going to be funny.